This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with licensed psychologist Dr. Kenneth Adams about enmeshment, emotional incest, and observing family dynamics as a warning sign for future toxic behaviors. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everybody. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Dr. Kenneth Adams. How are you? Well, good. Nice to be here. Appreciate your work and have an opportunity to talk about enmeshment with you to see how it fits with your audience. Well, uh, thank you for being here. And for those that don't know you, you are a licensed psychologist. You are a leader, an expert, and consultant in childhood abuse, dysfunctional family systems, and sex addiction. You are, you know, when it comes to enmeshment and family enmeshment, you are the number one person to go to and foremost expert in it. And people can reach you at overcomingenmeshment.com. And the first time I was introduced to you, was through our support group when we were looking for information for people uh, about their own enmeshment situations, and I stumbled upon your books. And your books are uh, When He's Married to Mom and Silently Seduced. I suggest everyone who's in these situations uh, go read these books. So I guess the first way that we're going to start off here is just to define what is enmeshment. Well, so enmeshment is a broad um, descriptor that is used, and you hear it in the you you can hear it bantered around in the um, you know common uh, lore of our public domain now, right? You can hear people using the word enmeshment, and it means that people are intertwined and too close at a cost to their own independence or their own journey, and they've absorbed the loyalty. Um, implicitly demanded or explicitly demanded from this case a family member um, at a cost to what they should be doing for themselves or for their romantic partner or even their professional interests. So enmeshment is meant to describe over-involvement um, and in which separateness, uh, emancipation, independence is seen as disloyal. You know, you damn well better show up for the family dinner, otherwise outcast from this family, right? Never mind that you have a family of your own. So there's lots of sort of variations on that, but that's a broad umbrella. Too much involvement at a cost 
to independence. And for people listening, I know a lot of people will say, well, I'm from a close family. How is a close family different from enmeshment? And I guess it would be a close family would be, you know, there are no, the, there's, there's no black and white, I guess, obligations or, or things along those lines. How would you kind of differ? Yeah, it's a nice question uh, because I think that one of the attractions, uh, especially if you get involved with some, if you come from a family where there's not a lot of closeness and you you romantically hook up with somebody who has an enmeshed family, your first um, impression is this is a lot of warmth and a lot of love going around here until you get consumed by it. And then what what you notice in a close family from an enmeshed system is very it's a very clear distinction. In a close family. We love you because we love you, not because you owe us. We love you because we want what's best for you, and we want to see you. But if you can't make it this Christmas, we understand. We hope to see you next Christmas. So you're not guilted into obligatory assignments to be here for me at a cost to yourself. I might like you to be here. I might like to see you. I might want to have you join the the family dinner, but you're not obligated to. So that obligatory demand implicitly or explicitly delivered is your clear line in the sand between a loving, caring system and an immersed system. So there's nothing loving about you owe me. There's nothing loving about the fact that why did you move so far away from mom? You know I needed you. I want you to call me every day, even if you're, if it's costing you problems in your marriage, right? So that's a very clear line. And, and your audience doesn't want to get confused by that. The obligatory demand that you're loyal to me first, second, and third is not closeness or love. It's, it's guilt and obligation. hope that helps. That helps a lot. And, you know, because a lot of our audience sees things from the domestic violence point of view with something called the fog, which is fear, obligation and guilt to know if you're in an abusive relationship and and what's going on. And this can be you can use the exact same uh, way to determine if you're in an an enmeshed family. And one thing uh, when it comes to enmeshment is the role of a surrogate partner to parents, when we can kind of now go to a a deeper level here, there's father-daughter enmeshment, there's mother-son enmeshment. So uh, what are signs that you have become your parents' surrogate partner? Yeah. So you're, you're, you're now defining uh, us a little more specifically, right? You're, you're moving from the broad enmeshment umbrella to this role of now I'm my mother or father's surrogate husband or surrogate wife or, or, or sexy girlfriend or boyfriend from my mother to put on her arm. So that's a very specific role. It typically a um, that role emerges from a marital bond. In this case, we'll just call it for sake of of a clarity, a heterosexual marriage. Although you see this in other um, orientation couples and so forth. But uh, for I think for clarity purposes, we'll just call it that when the mother and father lack intimacy. Uh, that sensitive, empathic boy or girl will try to be there for mommy or daddy. And then there's nothing wrong with a sweet, empathic boy or girl, right? There's a normal love affair between parent and child, right? And um, it's just the way it is. I fall in love with mommy and I want to marry mommy or daddy. But, you know, mommy or daddy is married to my other parent. And so, and then they tell me, that's very sweet of you, honey, but you're going to go off and marry somebody else one day, right? So that's a biological 
love affair between parent and child. When the parent begins to exploit that, starts talking to the children about their personal problems, even even sexual issues, frustrations with the father, or demands that they not go too far, or keeps them too close, and they begin to intertwine them into an obligatory contract of, I want you to be here for me, I'm lonely. Pay attention to me because nobody else is doing that. And that empathic, sensitive, sweet boy or girl says, sure, mommy, I'll do that, right? And pretty soon what you have that starts off as a role of comforter before long begins to look like that they've become the surrogate husband to a lonely mother. And now I'm always checking up on you. I'm, I'm tending to you when you're fighting with dad. You know, you can come visit me. I even take vacations with you without my wife or my, um, without my father. I've, I've had some pretty extreme examples of that. And uh, what we begin to see in adulthood is these, if we look at men and their mothers, for example, is we see men who have a lot of anger, um, pent up, uh, they struggle to commit, um, and they struggle to remain loyal when they are committed. And so their, their primary marital bond is still with the mother. And so the woman in their life gets second helpings, if you will, or, or the backseat of the relationship. So that dynamic is really a real trigger for us to know that there's been a surrogate partnership is when, when the, in this case, the man puts the woman second to his mother. And in spite of her complaints or and so forth, he continues to declare loyalty to her. So there you have a very clear definition of a surrogate um, husbandry role or, or in the opposite gender, a wife role. And when it comes to the father-daughter relationship and then the mother-son relationship, are there differences that can happen between the two that set them apart from each other? Yeah, so that's that's uh, that's another good question. Um, so we typically see, so let's just stay with the mother for the moment. So if we if the mother has turned to her son for um, the surrogate partnership role, this it's a companionship role. Don't leave me. I'm lonely. Your father's no good. He's betraying me. He's abusive. Um, I want you by my side. Um, We'll see this man typically have difficulties with commitment, sexuality, showing up sexually unless he's acting out with somebody in a non-committed situation, like an affair, for example. Um, sometimes addictions, food, sometimes sex. Um, we see it's something similar with, with girls who have become their father's girlfriends, surrogate girlfriends or wives. They tend to have these commitment problems. So there's not a lot of differences there. Where, where you see differences in, in commitment issues, I think I mentioned that, but we see women as well who have been their father's surrogate partners having difficulty with commitment. When the, when the daughter is the mother's surrogate partner, so, and it's, it's, and she's, her orientation is heterosexual, we'll say here, when the when the daughter is the mother's surrogate partner, she tends to have um, uh, problems with overcommitting when she shouldn't, declaring loyalty to 
individuals, men who might be hurtful or abusive to her. Because what she's learned from her mother is she's internalized her mother's role is standing by the father who's abandoned the family. She's taken on the mother's identity. In addition, she's become loyal to the mother. So she has a double whammy. And she she is set up to wind up choosing men who who can be potentially destructive to her. So, and, and we tend to see more eating disorders with those women than we do sexual issues. Um, and uh, although we can see eating problems with both of those arrangements. We don't tend to see a lot of sons as surrogate partners to their fathers. What we see sometimes is sons who are the narcissistic extension of their fathers. I want you to be the best football player. I want you, you know, I want you to be an extension for me. Don't let me down. You better please me. So there can be a link, but typically not a surrogate spousal role, but a sort of nurse. All of these pieces have narcissistic links, by the way, in the, in the spirit of your topic here. Mm-hmm. All of these in the sense that, that the, it's servicing the needs of the parent rather than the child. So the parent's narcissism is almost always at play here. Yeah, either when it is in a father-daughter or mother-son role where you're filling the uh, mother or father's needs, their instant needs, and it's their needs over yours in the sense of, you know, you're a child and a a parent should always, you know, really tend to the child's needs uh, and the child should not be tending to your needs. And in this case, that is a role. And then in in the same-sex roles they're the extension of mm-hmm. uh, themselves which is a classic mm-hmm. uh, narcissistic parent uh, trait where they don't see their child as an individual they see them as an extension mm-hmm. of who they are precisely precisely so you know in our group there was the time when we brought up the term um, you know non-sexual emotional incest and it the term for a lot of people the word that comes out of their mouth that i hear often is yucky that's how they feel about it that's how like as soon as it's brought up that word is brought up that's how they feel and it's for people who are listening who have dealt with this in their life you know sexual or non-sexual or not saying that this there's no shame about this but this is you know, what was coming out of their mouths. And so can you uh, explain what is non-sexual emotional incest for the people that may not even know that that's what they've uh, been dealing with? And then also Mm -hmm. explain how can a relationship with a parent be considered incestuous incestuous without actual sexual contact? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Good questions. So yeah, let's, let's look at the, let's look at the language for a minute. So, uh, when we think of incest, we usually think of physical sexual contact. So it might be better to use the word physical sexual contact. When you have physical sexual contact from an adult to a minor, you, and it involves a family member, you have an incestuous relationship. It could be also could be same age, your cousins, you're, you're still having, or sisters, brothers. It's incestuous by definition. So, um, well, so when... So there's physical sexual contact. The terms that have been used to describe incestuous dynamics, sexual too close, 
has been covert, which I used in silently seduced and emotional incest. You tend to hear emotional incest more than you do covert incest. So the, the, the important thing to think about, though, is that that still involves feelings of sexuality, right? So sexuality is not just about touch. It's about feeling, right? So when I'm a young kid, my first love affair is with my parent. I fall in love with my mother. I want to marry my mother or my father, right? That's the early bud of romance. And, and those, those of your audience members who are parents know that their kids have wanted to marry them and have kids. And it's very cute. And they don't learn it on Disney Channel. It's hardwired. It's just organically hardwired to have that early bud of romance. So when the parent says, oh, no, you're mine. And I want you close to me while I change and put, you know, while I put on my bra or what do you think of how mommy looks? Why don't you and I go to the movies because daddy's not around? Pretty soon that early innocent love affair is feels icky. So you brought that up, right? You brought up the word icky to, uh, in, or, or not icky, but something yucky. along those lines. Yucky, yucky, yucky and icky. I, I sort of hear them the same way. And, so what you're describing is, oh, man, this is too close. I don't want to be around you changing. I don't want to go to the movies with you and show me off like I'm your boyfriend. So even though there's not physical sexual touch, there's a dynamic or an atmosphere of sexualized romance that feels too icky. I want to fall in love with the girl across the way in school. Not you, mommy. Right? But you, don't, you get jealous when I, when I bring home a girl. You get jealous when I wanted to go out. So I can't tell you the number of stories I hear where with this covert or emotionally incestuous dynamic of almost feels like a boyfriend-girlfriend dynamic, right, without physical sexual contact, is that there's jealousy of potential suitors. And if that person should dare get married, <laughs> the the parent is very jealous and sometimes will overtly undermine the marriage or covertly. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about this relationship in which the child is not free to say, no, I can't marry mommy because she's married to somebody else and she doesn't need me. I'm going to go find my own relationship, right? So instead I get stuck being too close to you and now it feels icky. And now so I have to shut my sexuality down or I get over aroused and I go act it out, right? I go have multiple relationships or I can't stay loyal to a marriage or, you know, sometimes these covert or emotionally incestuous relationship, relationships can cause over arousal. So remember, sexuality is always unfolding over the course of a lifetime. It's not your first orgasm. It's not, it's not your first love affair. It's the, Sexuality is an integral part of the developmental process, right? If if mommy and daddy love each other and there's appropriate touch and they give me some space, but they also hug me appropriately, then I get to have my sexuality evolve naturally. And I can put love and passion together in the same movement, right? Love can serve uh, sex and sex can serve love. But if I'm icky next to my mother, I have to shut myself down. I have to compartmentalize my sexuality. So for your listeners, it's important to understand that somebody's sexuality can be violated 
without physical sexual touch. Think about somebody, give you another example. Think about somebody who grows up with a father who's sexually compulsive or addicted or adulterous. And he or she witnesses his multiple affairs. That's going to have a lasting impact on that kid. That child's sexuality will not be his or her own. They will, they will organize their own sexual development in reaction to that parent's affairs. No physical sexual touch, but the inappropriateness, the shame-driven behavior, the compulsivity impacts the developing sexuality. Same with surrogate partnerships that are too close. Is that is that helpful? Oh yeah, very helpful. Um, and you know, when it comes, you know, as as I kind of discussed with you before we started recording, you know, mm-hmm. one of the ways I I have told people to try and assess, you know, the family that they're dealing with. You know, we hear a lot in the stories that. Uh, sometimes that the mother is overly involved. Usually it's the mother in our stories that we hear most of the time that is overly involved kind of somehow. Um, and, you know, it's probably equal, but for in, in our show, that's the way it's been. And, you know, these are kind of like the signs in, 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 in some ways where uh, during the love bombing period, during the honeymoon period, everything seems normal, but the family stuff can be the biggest giveaway of what is to come. So as an outsider who is not someone who didn't grow up within this, what are the things that you're looking for when you're uh, dating someone and when it comes to this, to see like, this is what I'm dealing with. This is what I know. Uh, what to do. And I guess a sidebar question uh, when it comes to that is once I do recognize that, maybe I even marry this person. Um, how do I get that person to recognize what is going on and to do something about it? Mm, mm-hmm. So let's, let's hang on to that second question. So I, <laughs> while I try to warm, warm up to the first one. So let's let's lay out let's lay out a few characteristics of what we see as healthy families first, okay? okay yeah. which, which will give your listeners um, some reference point as to what they should be comparing to. So I don't have the official list in front of me, but I can uh, check off a handful from memory. And if you go into the literature on family system therapists, so I learned a lot of my stuff from family family ther- family system therapists. Pete, Therapists who deal with the whole system, and so you see things on the list when they when these clinicians uh, look at healthy systems, they they notice a number of things. One of which is that there's clear generational boundaries. So my mother is not controlling my life. So your potential mate, and you're visiting your family, you're noticing that they're respectful of his or her independence. That they're not trying to dominate him. So clear generational boundaries. Everybody's autonomy is respected, meaning that, um, you know, I I get to be who I am, even if I'm not the quarterback, right? And I know dad wanted a quarterback, but I happen to be an artist, right? So we notice in healthy family systems that all individuals are honored for their own uniqueness and their own separateness. The commitment to the family of origin, let me back up a minute. This is the most critical element of a healthy system. To the commitment to the family of procreation 
is greater than the commitment to the family of origin. So if you're walking into a family gathering or you get to know your spouse's or potential spouse's family and you notice that their commitment and loyalty is to the family they created, right? We're going to have a separate Christmas this year or, or Hanukkah or whatever. And we're not going to go visit my mother or father, in, in this case, your client's grandparents. And that's okay, right? Our commitment is to the family and to the romance that I'm in, not to my mother. And what we have in these MS systems is we have people trying to equal the loyalties. So the loyalty is always greater to the family appropriation, the one I've created, than the family of origin. That's a healthy sign. Um, affection is freely given. I give love and affection freely without obligation. So you want to reverse the handful of those to determine warning signs. So if you walk into a system of a potential mate and you begin to notice messages uh, and also gender issues. So if we, we have rigid or gender roles or criticisms about gender women, so if, if, if there are sexualized jokes uh, about gender or stuff in the family system, it can be a sign that there's some trouble there, right? That there's not, they're not respecting each individual. So if I'm joking about women, or somebody's joking about dads, always joking about women, and we're all kind of chuckling, but the jokes aren't really funny, and they also are very sexualized, then that would indicate that not all individuals are being respected, particularly the women in the family. So if you walk into a system and you notice that one person's dominant, let's say in this case the father, he's dominant, he dictates the rules, you damn well better do what he wants you to do, otherwise he's angry. So you begin to notice that there's this fear-based obligation in your potential mate, and he or she is worried about pleasing him. Those are reference points that suggest that they have not fully emancipated from their family, and they feel under obligatory assignment to please that authoritative parent. Father often, but it can be the mother too. And so that's a sign that your um, listener domestic violence would want to pay attention to, right? So his, her, her mate is coming from a system in which was modeled for him that one person was in charge and it wasn't him, first of all, right? And that he grew up seeing modeled that the man dictates terms, puts down women and so forth. So those are signs that you have a system that's in trouble and that, Role assignments are the way we manage how we deal with things here. Your role is to do X, Y, and Z. You better call your mother. I don't want to deal with her. Right? So that man then comes home and takes it out on his girlfriend who is in your audience, right? He has to deal with his mother's complaints about his father. He wants nothing to do with that. He's learned to be angry with him, and he discharges and displaces his anger on his new girlfriend. Bad sign. Particularly if he doesn't see it. So let's come to your question. So let's just say, for example, here you are, woman sitting in your audience. She's fallen in love or falling in love with a man who she finds charming, but she goes to a couple family visits, and sure enough, she sees what we just described. Father dominant, you know, sexualized comments, jokes about women. Women aren't being respected here. 
they're sort of elevated on one hand, but in a sexualized way. And um, and he's stuck. And the man's stuck dealing with mother. He's a surrogate husband to the mother. Father calls him and says, "Deal with your mother. Make sure you're at the at the holiday dinner because I don't want to deal with your mother. She needs you." Okay. So they go to the dinner. Your listener tries to be understanding. She sees the bond her boyfriend's in. Um, she comes home and all of a sudden he's raging at her. Whoa, how that happened? Well, that's happened through a process we call displacement. I can't rage at my father and my mother because I'm a little boy with them. So I'm going to rage at my woman. We displaced our anger onto somebody who's closest to us where it doesn't belong. Now, should she stay or should she go? <laughs> so there's the uh, there's the question for your listener, right? And I have a chapter, by the way, in When He's Married to Mom called Just That. Should I stay or should I go? Because that's the first question these women have of these men who are stuck in this position. And most of them want to know, um, and I just got off a consult a, a little while ago with a woman who was trying to figure out whether she should stay or go. And... Um, it's difficult. And I said to her, I said, you know, do you notice that you're working harder than he is to figure this out? That's not a good sign. So I think there can be a soft invitation. Look at, I'm really struggling with our romance. I see you're in a bind with your family. But I'm going forward. I'm going to need loyalty to us first and your family second. What do you think about that? Is that someplace we can get to? Now, if he's really in the kind of system I just described, she's likely to get his rage, isn't she? Which is trouble. If she can't ask for that, if she can't ask a question about where are we going with this loyalty issue, that's a sign that she probably is not going to have a very likely chance to convince him. If he says, you know what? I'm glad you brought that up. It's uncomfortable. I don't like it, but I'd like to look at it because I want you in my life and I got to figure out how to deal with my family. Okay, now we can talk. Why don't we enter therapy together? Why don't you go to one of the workshops that Dr. Adams does on men who are enmeshed with their mothers? Um, but the man has to be, so in this case, the man has to have enough humility and willingness to see the problem as a problem for himself. Otherwise, in this case, the woman has little chance to convince him. She can. She might drag him to therapy. Maybe the therapy helps bring some consciousness about. So there's some very good therapists out there who can help with that process. So maybe she has to do a little dragging. He kicks and screams. Sometimes that works. Oftentimes, though, that's not a good starting place. So soft startup, invitational you know, can we work on this together? Can we see a, ther a couple's therapist together? Um, would you be willing to read the books, look, listen to the, the podcast like you're doing here? And the more willingness he shows, in this case, the, the man being the identified uh, problem, if you will, um, the better the chance that she can influence that. The more he digs his heels, the more he gaslights her, the more he rages at her, the more he pushes back and tells her, how dare you? It's not a good sign. So you bring up the term rage. So when someone is out of the house, 
you know, they've, they're 18, they've moved out or whenever they do move out of the house, if they've moved out of the house, um, these, you know, whatever's happened within your enmeshed relationship with your family can manifest itself in, in different ways. And you brought up here that, you know, instead of raging at my family, because I can't, I start raging at other people. Are there mm-hmm. other uh, ways that manifest that people can uh, look at themselves like right now and say like, I do that, I do that, I do that. Okay, may, this is what I, this is where it came from. This is why I am the way I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're talking about what are the, what are the characteristics that we see yeah. in, in adults who are from a mesh system, right? So um, caretaking, be, feeling like I have to be overly responsible for people. So that my identity is, is is primarily, if not exclusively, organized around how I please you. So that's trouble, right? I mean, it, it makes for nice guys and nice women, but not for very strong, clear people. Um, so, and, they, and we also see difficulties with commitments. I'm always, I think I can make the gathering, but I'll let you know an hour before, right? So difficulty with commitment is a big thing or impetuously committing, right? So being around my mother and her demanding that I be loyal to her, if a woman comes along and says, I like you, I must like you in return. I don't even consider whether I like you or not. It's just I'm now organized around you quickly, impetuously to give you what you want even before I consider what I want. So sometimes we see people getting involved in romances, and commitments impetuously. So we see both extremes here. Difficulty with commitment and committing quickly because you like me. I don't even know who I like, but I define myself based on what you need. So therefore it must be, I must marry you because that's what you want. Uh, We see difficulty um, with addictions. So, you know, if I have to keep giving to you over and over again, um, Loyalty, time, energy, I get angry. I have losses. Um, I feel diminished. So pretty soon, reaching for food, reaching for compulsive sex, drugs, alcohol, all become places that I turn to to escape my, you know, uh, conflict that I keep carrying around. We see difficulty with being loyal when I am committed. So um, if I have a commitment with a a romantic partner, uh, I find myself sometimes unable to stay committed. And I might even betray the person Um, because in in porn, for example, or in um, non-committed sexual encounters, I'm free. Nobody's demanding anything from me, right? Whereas if I'm in, in a committed situation, I feel emotionally exhausted because I have to organize it on this person. So one of the other things we see is what we call a split in sexuality. And I can be sexual with non-committed situations, porn, online sex, people I'm not involved with. But I have a hard time staying emotionally, sexually engaged in long-term commitments because I begin to feel burdened and bogged down. So my sexuality diminishes over time. So it's an interesting, interesting for me, (laughs) trouble for the individuals, but it's an interesting split that we can see in people. So sexual problems. 
um, some indecisiveness, a lot of indecisiveness. I'm not sure I can do that. And they let they let opportunities go by. You know, I've met I've met individuals who have made commitments to careers that were never their choosing; it was their mother's choosing. So sometimes we get um, a lack of passion and purpose in careers, in romance. So there's a sort of the oomph, the passion and purpose has been diminished. And so I don't know where I'm going. I'm kind of lost, indecisive. Sure, you want to go to that restaurant? When people used to go to restaurants, <laughs> we'll, we'll go there because you want to go there. And so I kind of go along with others, but I don't really know who I am. I've lost and maybe never had my passion and purpose. So uh, ironically, the um, not so ironic, but the subtitle of the workshops we do for the men uh, uh, overcoming enmeshment is uh, moving from guilt and ambivalence to passion and purpose. So I picked that subtitle because I wanted a, a clear documentation of what we're after. And that really is what recovery from enmeshment is. You move from guilt and ambivalence to passion and purpose in all of your affairs. I don't mean sexual affairs. I mean all of your life affairs. The lack of passion and purpose is a big one. Is it fair to say that for some people, or maybe all of people, uh, that enmeshment leads to codependency? Yeah, that's that's a that's a fair that's a fair um, uh, link. Because uh, let's just talk about that for a minute, because I think the people can get that confused. So codependency is its own descriptor, right? I sort of organize around you. I like what you like. I I don't have a voice for myself. And there's a variety of different traumas and issues that can get you to codependency. Enmeshment, you're right, is a path to being codependent, right? Where my identity is organized around you, I feel guilty. That's the other thing I feel, another characteristic is I tend to feel guilty around standing up for myself and wanting things for myself. It's easier for me to give you what you want than to ask you for what I want. So sure. I mean, that's a fair statement in that enmeshment leads to a sort of codependent identity sort of issue. So once we know everything that you've just given us, a big question for people that's been asked is, what are some tools to help break the cycle of family enmeshment? Well, I think um, listening to podcasts like yours, getting educated. Right, so what you're doing is a great service in my mind. So good for you. I appreciate that. And uh, so getting educated, reading books on the subject. There's not a lot out there. I've got a couple, as you mentioned. I've got podcasts, and we've got some. Um, we have, by the way, a monthly uh, free webinars on the topic. So getting educated about it. You can find out about that on my website, overcomingemeshment.com. So all the education you can do, it gives you a safe place to begin to consider. The, the topic at hand, right? Rather than sitting in a therapist's office and feeling confronted, although therapists isn't going to be confrontational necessarily, but you could feel challenged by the information. So education allows a sort of safe harbor to sort of come and go in the material. So that's the first thing I would do is get educated. Try to change and challenge your beliefs. Why, why are you feeling obligated to your parents? How'd that come about? Because the truth of the matter is, 
The parent's job is to send you off into your life. It's not to hold on to you. So if you hold the belief that you must be obligated to your parents at a cost to yourself, we would call that a faulty belief based upon obligatory assignments that shouldn't have been. So challenging, identifying your belief system, doing a little challenging, and then changing the dialogue within yourself. So wait a minute here. Okay, mom. And then beginning to have, based on that change in belief system, then you might role play. You might get a friend to role play, or you might role play it out loud with when you're in the bathroom before you go visit your, <laughs> talk to your parents. Um, when your mom brings up conflict with your dad, you're going to, since you've already challenged your belief, I'm not responsible. How did I get here? This is your responsibility. Mom, you know what? I'm uncomfortable you talking to me about dad. I'm going to let you deal with it. How's the weather? up there. So you quickly learn to push back and you don't need agreement. So one of the problems, if you're in this codependency, nice guy, nice girl routine, you want your mommy and daddy to be agreeable to you. Don't count on it. Don't count on it. Don't count on it. Be prepared to be misperceived. But you can still respectfully say, you know what? I know you're concerned about your problems with dad, but I'm not available to listen. How is the weather? So you, then you quickly learn to change the subject and don't get into a conversation. So it's my, my first rule is don't. Emancipation is not a discussion. My emancipation from you, mother or father, is not your, your approval is not required. I might like your blessing, but I don't need your approval. My job is to be my own man or my own woman, not to be your son or daughter. That ship has sailed. So that's a new belief. Now, you might or might not say that to your parents, but you say it to yourself. And then you begin to set boundaries. And be prepared to get pushed back. By the yeah, way. And boundaries being uh, a big thing. The, the, boundaries being the key. And, you know, while listening to you here and talking about enmeshment, when you initially at the beginning of the conversation discussed, you know, loyalty, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the, I guess what we're dealing here with here is, you know, the idea of like I'm from a cult in, in a way um, and that in in respect to setting boundaries, you know, if you if you're just one person or if you come from a big family, you might be a domino of the person setting boundaries here and you have to um before you start doing it i guess come to the the understanding that you might be shunned possibly from the family due to the fact that you're trying to separate yourself from enmeshment and do you have words for those people that are doing that um and you know i guess comforting words that they're doing the work yeah that's that's a good point and you you raise the biggest fear when people begin to try to emancipate from an enmesh system or an enmesh surrogate spousal role, is that there can be retaliatory positions of disinheritance. I don't mean financially, although we see that too, uh, but emotionally, right? And and then you get you get the calls from the brother or the sister or the cousins, right? What's wrong with you? Why aren't you talking to mom? And you have to be prepared to sit by look at If mom needs to talk to me, she can call me. I don't want you talking for her. So it is a series of new behaviors and new boundaries 
that bring about shifts in the way this family relates to you. And initially, there is a there is a friction, conflict, and loss. And sometimes part of the loss is giving up your golden boy or golden girl status. So that's the other issue here that we see with these men and women who are in these positions is they've been elevated. They're the golden boy. They please mommy. They please daddy or the golden girl. And they struggle to let go of that. And part of the letting go is your willingness to not be in that position anymore. You're going to lose your golden status. And so there has to be some grief. Most families will come around and they re- at least resign themselves to your new position. Some of them won't. Some of them will hold a grievance against you. Some of them will continue to gossip behind your back. You have to show up as the adult. You come to the family gathering, you know you've been talked about. You give your brother or sister a big hug. You give your mother and father a big hug. You say, I'm glad to see you. How have you been? You get to be the adult and be the decider on how that goes. So I've, I've seen lots of people. We've seen 600 people in my 600 men from all around the world come to the workshops, for example, over seven years and with lots of success, success stories. So people do emancipate. Families do adjust. I think the, the more diplomatic, without compromising your position, that you deliver the boundary, the better. So look, Mom, I love you. But I just am not available to listen to complain about dad anymore. Can we move on? So it's a very simple, loving statement, but you don't compromise it. And so eventually the parent will make an adjustment in most cases. Even if they pout a little bit, you just let that happen until they come around. Sometimes they don't come around. We're, we're One of the things we're adding to our overcoming enmeshment umbrella is we're, we're looking to add a class, eventually a workshop for parents, which is hard, which is, I know parents need out there. I mean, I'm a, I'm a father of a, a young college student and, you know, I'm watching this kid go on in his own life. And, you know, uh, he and I have had a good relationship and we still do, but it's different. My job is to adjust to that change. It is not his assignment to worry about his father and mother and make accommodations for us. It's our job to make the adjustment. The last spiritual assignment, so I'll give this to your listeners here before we end a little bit. The last spiritual assignment for the parent is to take the loss and to make the adjustment for the emerging adult that their son or daughter is becoming. It is not the adult child's job to cushion the blow. There's no getting around that, even though people try to compromise that. But that is the last, I'll call it the last spiritual assignment for a parent is to take a deep breath and let that kid go. Let that kid go and then adjust. So now you become more peer-like to your adult child. Now we have a different relationship. But it's not your job to cushion my loss. I love you. I hope you visit me, you know, and we have good connections over the years and we do other things together but it's not your job to take care of the fact that you're no longer in my life in the same way it's my job to do that 
Well, Dr. Kenneth Adams, I really want to thank you for being here with me and everyone today. This was a tremendous uh, wealth of knowledge that you've given us. So thank you so much for being here. And where can everyone find you and what are your latest uh, things that you've been working on? Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for letting me um, talk with you about this. I always am pleased to do that. You did a nice job, by the way. And uh, so overcoming enmeshment, one word, overcomingenmeshment.com. You get all the updates on podcasts and so forth. Um, so we continue uh, offering workshops for men and women who are enmeshed with the parent. We have uh, workshops for couples, um, uh, although the, the individuals have to have gone through the other ones first to get into the couples. We're going to do a, a three-part one for partners, and we have monthly um, webinars now that are free of charge. Uh, second Wednesday of every month, um, topics at 12 o'clock noon Eastern, 12, uh, topics related to enmeshment. So this Wednesday, to, uh, tomorrow, um, I don't know when this gets aired. I guess maybe this will be on Friday. So maybe next Wednesday. Oh, the following Wednesday, the Wednesday in February is I'm up. So my facilitators, I'm up on how to protect your romance over over Valentine's Day from enmeshment. So uh, I'll be up. It's my turn. Uh, my facil- I have I have great people I work with who do a lot of facilitation too. So so check us out. You'll find all the information you need there. And um, I appreciate being here. Well, thank you. And before we end our show, I just want to remind people who want to be a guest on our show to please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. Click that button. There's all these instructions. You can either fill out our guest form or send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. Also at our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com, there's a button there that says Community Support, Support Group. You press that button, it takes you to our very own safe social network. On our social network, we have forum boards you can post on that people will reply to, get some support there. We have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Saturday night, and now every other Thursday afternoon for the people who can only do afternoon or you're in Europe. And these, this is a chance for you people in Europe to be part of those groups as well. We have ad-free episodes, episodes that never made it to air. And for people that just want to support the show, uh, go there, uh, you know, just become a member of, of our group to support the show as well. And you can do that at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, you press that support, that support group button, and we will see you there. And if you need more support, you can go to DomesticShelters.org. So if you or someone you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone. DomesticShelters.org offers an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you are experiencing. So if you want to connect with local resources like shelters and find ways to heal and move forward, please do visit DomesticShelters.org to access this free resource. And once again, a big thank you to Dr. Kenneth Adams for today's wonderful episode. And from Dr. Kenneth Adams and myself, we hope you have a good night.